Turn back again with me, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. And we find here these repeated questions of Christ to those to whom he ministered. As he asked in Matthew 16, verse 13, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And of course they give various answers. Oh, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elias, some say Jeremiah, or, or one of the other prophets. But Jesus wanted to tie them down, and they said to them, But whom do you say that I am? And I want to put that question to all of your hearts tonight. Who is Jesus Christ to you? What does he mean to you? And what do you know about him? As a congregation, we were all greatly challenged Wednesday night by when we heard the Reverend Derek Maxwell representing the Slavic Gospel Association tell us about all of the, the various parts in which the mission works. Many had come to hear just about Ukraine and we were delighted to hear about the work of the gospel amongst the bombs and the rubble of Ukraine and how souls are finding the saviour and churches are being planted and new converts are being discipled and the work of God goes forward. And likewise it was on the other side of the border to hear of God's blessing in the land of, of Russia. And to hear of dear souls coming to faith in Christ there in that communist land uh, in which children are indoctrinated from a very early age in, in atheism. To hear of, of hundreds of children coming and young people coming to faith in Christ. And they're seeing something happening in their land that we haven't saw in our land for a very, very long time. And then he brought us to the country of Mongolia. And that really intrigued my heart to learn a little bit more about this wonderful country. It is a nation in East, Africa, in East Asia. It's only a population of 3.2 million. But it's the same size as Alaska. There are 28 people groups in Mongolia. And 22 of them are still unreached. The religious breakdown of the population is dominated by Buddhism, 55%, Islam, 3%, Shamanism, 2.9%, other religions, 38.2%, and Evangelical Christians, less than 0.9%. That's amazing, because when the Russians left Mongolia in 1990, it is said that the, the nation was a clean slate there was reckoned to be less than half a dozen evangelical Christians in the nation. Half a dozen. And in that short space of time from 1990, just from the church here and on along started in 1990, what happened? Well, it is estimated that there are now several hundred churches that are prospering and knowing the blessing of Almighty God. But they're struggling just through lack of leadership and, and thus the, the mission is engaged in training the leaders of the churches there to take it forward into the next generation. We know that Mongolia shares the border with Russia to the north and China sweeps around its western and southern and eastern borders. It's landlocked. It's landlocked. And some of the, the unusual statistics are that there are as many horses in Mongolia as there are people. And 
interest of some here tonight, sheep outnumber people by five to one. That's a lot of sheep. But they're spread out over a vast array of, of ground. And a lot of the people who look after the horses and the sheep and the other herding animals, they're nomadic people. And so they travel from one grazing uh, area of pasture to another grazing area of pasture. And how do you reach these people that are always on the go all of the time? And one way in which they have found that it's very effective in reaching those nomadic people is through radio. And I think we were all humbled and encouraged to hear the testimony of one couple, how they were brought to Christ through the radio, how they're instructed in the things of Christ, and how that little radio, just a little handset like this, is their church. And as they move, the radio moves with them, and the teaching moves with them. And they were so glad and thankful uh, for uh, the teaching that they receive. And one of the broadcasts went out is simply this, Who is Jesus? You put that question to people that are brought up in Buddhism, in Islam, of all the various shades of Islam. You put that question to people that are brought up in shamanism. Shamanism is the, is the, word, is the worship of, of ancestors. And you put that question to them, who is Jesus? They wouldn't know. And sadly, if you put that question to many and mourn, Though they've heard the name, they wouldn't know either. Who is Jesus? Jesus asked that very question of his disciples. And we're intrigued by the answer that they gave to him. It's not my purpose to go down this passage tonight. We've covered that passage, I think, quite often. But I just want to emphasize to you from the passage, Matthew 16, 15, that you have to know who the biblical Jesus is. The Jesus out of the Bible. There's another Jesus that is preached today that is not the Jesus of the Scriptures. And it's only what God has revealed of Jesus in the Scriptures and of his work and of his, not only his work, but his work not only for us, but his work in us that is going to save souls and bring them to heaven and to glory. Now let me ask you tonight, who do you say Jesus is? If someone from Mongolia came and asked you, Bible-believing, evangelical Christian that you are tonight, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that you're sending missionaries to my land to tell us about? How would you answer? It's not a challenging question for all of our hearts and for all of our lives. I thought from Wednesday night of how would I answer that question? How do you define all of that great theology just into a simple few sentences? And my mind immediately went to the Apostles' Creed. Remember the Apostles' Creed that starts off, I believe in. It's wonderful that we're able to say on the Sabbath day, I actually believe in something. I pity the man, I pity the woman who lives all of their life and they believe in nothing. And they die with nothing. But I actually believe in something. And that was why reformed churches of days gone by, they got people every, every Sabbath day to say collectively together the, 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 the creed, the Apostles' Creed, because that was their declaration of what they believed. Sadly, 
there would be many in our own free church, though we have covered it here, there would be many in our own free church that wouldn't know the Apostles' Creed if they met it. And yet the church of bygone generations has used it to affirm what they believe. So if I want to answer the question, who is Jesus? And to tell the man from Mongolia, or to tell the man from Analong, or Ballymartin, or Ballyvay, or Newcastle, or, or, or Kilkeel, who is Jesus? The simplest place to start off with is just to take the scriptural definitions that are found in the Apostles' Creed and outline it as such. Who is Jesus? Well, if we go down the creed, we learn first of all, as we have discovered in Matthew 16, that Jesus was God's only Son, our Lord. That's the wording of it. God's only Son, our Lord. Here we're starting off, I believe in, and we have the, the preface, but I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Not wonderful. I believe in Jesus Christ. It's wonderful we can say tonight, I believe, but I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. What does that tell us about Jesus? Well, if we're using the name Jesus, we're using part of the whole name. And it teaches us about his humanity. His humanity. The name Jesus is the Greek for Joshua, meaning God is Saviour or Deliverer. It was a very common name in that day and age in which he was manifest in the flesh. And it tells us he was a literal, historical person. He was real. He wasn't some figment of the imagination. He was a real person who lived, grew up, had a ministry, had a trade, had a family, had friends, had a ministry, and who died, and who rose again. That's Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ tells us not only, if Jesus tells us about his humanity, Christ tells us about his ministry. Because the word Christ is the New Testament equivalent of Messiah in the Old Testament. And so we learn something about the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is his official title. And in the Old Testament scriptures, he, he was the prophesied Messiah. He was to come as the prophet. And as the prophet, he came to perfectly reveal God's will to us. He reveals the Father's will to us. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. Because it is through Jesus that we know the Father. How will we know God? Well, we know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, you don't know God. Because Jesus is the way to God. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He came. He offered himself. He, he didn't offer anything else. No one was offered in his stead or in his place. But he was the perfect sacrifice. He himself was the perfect sacrifice to satisfy the divine justice of God. He offered himself to live a perfect life. You and I could say, we'll try. We, we'll try. We'll try to be good, but we'll never be good enough. We'll never be good enough. We could never live that perfect life. But only Jesus could. And he did. But he, not just, he didn't just live the perfect life. He offered his life as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy divine justice on that center cross. What a saviour we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is not only our prophet, he's not only our priest, he is our king. 
Because as the king, he leads his people. He guides his people. He protects his people. What, what a saviour we learn is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we, we're taught here that he is God's only son. God's only son. Here we, we, we learn about his deity. Uh, I love that hymn that Andrew picked tonight. John Newton's hymn. Because if Jesus was not God's son, everything about him would be null and void. It, it would be of no use whatsoever. The fact that he lived a perfect life would mean nothing. The fact that he died would mean nothing. But because he's God's own son, means that he's God manifest in the flesh. And that makes all the difference to all of our lives. But he's the Lord. And he's our Lord. And that tells me something about his sovereignty. The word that's translated for Lord oftentimes in the New Testament, it reminds us about his mastery. We submit to him. He is Lord. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead and he is Lord. But then sometimes we change it and we say, he's my Lord. He's my Lord. Is he your master tonight? Is he your Lord? Is he your saviour? Is he your prophet? Is he your priest? Is he your king? Because that's the Jesus of the Bible. It's not just a name on a page. It's just not a, a name that we're plucked out of the history books. He's a living person who lives in the hearts of all who own and love him as their Lord and Saviour. Secondly, when we think of this question, who is Jesus? We're reminded, according to the creed, again the Apostles' Creed, that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. That's, that, to me, is where it all starts. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is where it all starts. We've looked at that text so many times. This great sermon that was preached to all of mankind and to the spirit world, for Satan was there, Adam and Eve was there, and Jehovah spoke to them. And he said that the Messiah would be born and he would be the seed of the woman. That was very strange, wasn't it? But he would be the seed of the woman. And God told the serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. I think that's one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. When the devil comes to nip at your heel, and when he comes to torment your soul, you can have the joy in your soul in knowing that he is a broken-headed adversary. Jesus has defeated him. He's beheaded. He can nip at our heels. He can try to deter us, discourage us in so many different shapes and forms. But the Bible teaches us from Genesis 3.15 right to the last chapter of the book of Revelation that Jesus defeated him. He defeated him. The whole of the Old Testament, it was like a battle line. And there the battle lines were red. You had the line of the Messiah and you had the line of the serpent. And right throughout the Old Testament, the line of the serpent tried to uh, wipe out the line of the Messiah. And that battle line is still a red. The battle's still a red, men and women, in the day and age that we live in. We have those that are on the Lord's side, there are those that are against the Lord. And I want to say to all of you tonight, there's no middle ground. You're either on the Lord's side or you're against the Lord. You're either on the side of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. It's not a stark reality. 
for all of our souls tonight. For centuries, Christians accepted the, the scriptural truth that's outlined in the Apostles' Creed, that the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Technically, uh, we, we, we should speak about the virginal conception rather than the virginal birth, because Jesus was born just like any other child, but his conception was totally different. He was virginally conceived. Isaiah 7, 14 is the classic Old Testament text to prove the, the virginal conception of Christ. And the Hebrew word that is translated for virgin is Alma, and it's the same word, exact same word, that's found in the New Testament in Matthew 1 and 23. We bow, we bow before a God who can do the impossible. Mary said, how, sh how can this be saying, I know not a man? And what was the answer? With God, nothing shall be impossible. God made the impossible to be possible. And it's because God made the impossible to be possible in the virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ and that Christ came through that virginal conception on birth that you and I have hopes of heaven tonight. Without Genesis 3.15 and all that flows from it, we're all lost. But Jesus came. He wasn't born of the line of, of a man. He had that perfect sinless life. Thirdly, if we try to answer this question again, a follow-on from where we are in the virginal conception is that the creed emphasizes that he was the sinless Son of God. The sinless Son of God. A sinless substitute was needed in order to bear away the sins of all of his people. <clears throat> it had to be perfect. Remember the lamb, the Paschal lamb, they were separated from the flock and they were observed for days and there was no blemish. If even the slightest blemish was seen in one of those lambs, they couldn't be offered. And Jesus throughout his life, he was under the microscope. People the people gauged his words. They watched his actions. They, they watched where he went, what he did, who he mixed with. They judged him in every situation, but they could find no fault in him. He was absolutely perfect. And it was as the perfect sinless sacrifice that he laid down as his life a ransom for the many. I love all those verses that reference the sinlessness of Christ. Let me share some of them with you at least. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 5 verse 21 it says for he hath made him to be sin for us that's the sin offering he hath made him to be the sin offering for us who knew no sin who knew no sin uh, there's not a, a religious leader in the world that you could say about that today there's not a preacher in the world you could say about that today no matter how great and eminent and, and, and mightly used they've been they're all contaminated by sin as all of mankind have been. But Jesus knew no sin. The great sin offering was absolutely perfect. We read in Hebrews 4.15 For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. The temptation that Christ endured it was real. It was real. In the wilderness in Matthew 4, it was him and Satan. It was real. Nothing could have been more stark. Nothing could have been more dramatic, more, more pointed. It was real. 
and yet the devil came to him and found nothing in him. He was tempted yet without sin. In 1 John 3 and 5, we know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. You can never apologize for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's perfect. Many times you'd have to apologize for others who say they're the Lord's, but you'll never have to apologize for Christ. He's absolutely perfect. The fourth part of the answer to this question in the Creed is that he was not only sinless, but that he suffered. Because it tells us Jesus suffered in order to save our souls. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. You know, at the heart of the historic Christian faith is the sufferings, the crucifixion, and the death and the burial of Christ. He suffered. In this passage of scripture that we read in Matthew 16, the Lord Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples. He's revealing himself in a way that they never saw before. And not only does he reveal himself to be the Christ of God, but if you turn down to verse 21, verse 21, from that time forth, now they knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. <clears throat> we read, he said unto his disciples, how that he must go on to Jerusalem and suffer. He had to go and suffer. Many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And all of the Old Testament types and pictures, they were all pointing to this sacrifice, this sinless, spotless sacrifice who was going to come and suffer. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb. All the Jews knew what that meant. There was no other Lamb. The Lamb. There was only one Lamb, Jesus the spotless Son of God. You know it has become fashionable in, in liberal apostate uh, Christianity to deride the Son of God. They, they say that his virginal birth is just mythology. I've heard bishops say that on the, on the television in various debates. The sacrificial nature of his life and ministry to appease a, a, a sin-hating God is repugnant to them. There are, there are so-called evangelicals who, who hold it to be repugnant. But the Apostles' Creed represented just old-fashioned historic uh, Christianity. And what does it major under? It majors on the suffering of Christ. Under Pontius Pilate. His crucifixion, his death and burial. And it's an emphasis that we dare not lose in our own day and generation. He suffered. Of course he suffered right throughout his whole life. Because he came in as the spotless lamb of God. Into a broken sinful world. He, he had to move. He had to deal with the jealousies of his own disciples. He had to deal with the misunderstandings of his parents. That sensitive, sinless, spotless nature of Christ. It was torn in so many different directions. Even by those that loved him and were close to him. But primarily he suffered in his death. And that's what Jesus is speaking about here in verse 21. He died under Roman law. <clears throat> There's nothing so 
There's no death so hideous as crucifixion. <clears throat> Some of the, the, the felons who were crucified might have stayed on that cross for three, four, five days. It was a barbaric, a barbaric form of death. Jesus knew he had to suffer. Pilate put him on that cross knowing he was totally innocent. What a judge he was. He was well aware of all the sinful motives of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. That's why Jesus said in verse 21, He'll suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes. I was again reading this morning in Mark 15 how they cried. They cried, this is the Jewish religious leaders inciting the mob. They cried, crucify him, crucify him. It wasn't the Roman soldiers that cried it. It was the religious leaders inciting the mob. They cried, crucify him, crucify him. And you read down Mark 15. It struck me again this morning. All the references to the literal crucifixion on that, on that middle three of Calvary. Oh, he suffered. And he died. Nobody made him die. It wasn't the soldiers. It wasn't the nails. He voluntarily gave up his life for you and me. He died. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate. He died and was buried. But something more. The fifth part of the answer is that he descended into hell and the third day he rose again from the dead. There's a great tragedy that the modern Christian church lays so little emphasis on defining doctrinal truth. Today we're more into subjective experience. We, we want to hear how you feel and how this one feels and how that act and all of that thing today. But it's truth we need today. And it's no wonder we've lost ground to secularism simply because we don't know the truth. As Christians, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's foundational truth. He's either a risen saviour or he's not a saviour. He either rose again from the dead or he's a fraud. And if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, our preaching is in vain, our hope is in vain. He had to rise again from the dead. He's a risen saviour. He's not only a risen saviour, he's ascended saviour. And he's reigning and he's ruling. And all things are under his control. And all things are under his power. You might think, as we look out in the world today, things are out of sorts in nature. We, we, we know all creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. But he's still reigning. And when you and I come to die, he'll still be Lord. And he'll still be with us. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. You know, it would be a fool of a man to say he doesn't fear death. I think we all fear death. But what takes the fear out of death is that the great shepherd's with us. He went before us. He went into death before we went into death. 
And because he entered into death and rose victorious o'er the grave, we can enter in knowing that we too will rise through him. These are the truths of historic Christianity. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the one that descended into hell. I believe that's the grave. And the third day he rose again from the, the dead. And the sixth part of <clears throat> the answer to this all-important question, who is Jesus, is simply he's coming back again the second time. That's just simply how the creed outlines it. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. The quick there is just another word for the living. The second coming of Christ is witnessed in this historic affirmation of the Christian faith. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming again as the judge. As the judge. With his coming, there's going to be the resurrection. The resurrection of the body, of the, of the dead. What a day that's going to be when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and the dead will be raised. And those that are left behind will be caught up into the air and will be transformed. That last generation, just in the twinkling of an eye, they'll be transformed, caught up in the air, transformed, made like unto his glorious image. They will be the final generation that will not have to go to glory through the valley of the shadow of death. I believe, this is what the, the Christian church for, for centuries have said, I believe he will come again. This Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the one that's coming again. Now, here's where it gets very solemn. He's coming again as judge. He's coming to judge this world. All the wickedness, all the sin, all the debauchery, all the depravity. He's going to come and judge it. As we learned from Matthew 7, 2 and 3 in the past few weeks, We're all going to stand before him. And we're going to give an account. Some for their service. But some for their sin. Now I want to ask you tonight. If Jesus was to come again. This same Jesus that we've been thinking about. In Matthew 16. Would he be coming as your judge or as your saviour? If he comes for you at death or if he comes for you at the second coming, will you stand before him as a sinner saved by grace or one condemned in your sin for all of God's eternity? There's only two sides of this question. He's either your saviour or your judge. As you leave that building tonight, I want you to remember that. Who is Jesus? This is where it becomes very personal, isn't it? He's either my judge or my saviour. And if you're not saved tonight, he's your judge. And you'll give an account. You'll give an account. Every time somebody put the gospel in your hand, spoke the name of Jesus to you, directed you to a church building, asked you to a meeting, someone prayed for you, wept over you, pleaded with you, you'll give an account. Of every occasion. Now tell me. Are you going to meet him as judge? Or as a sinner saved by grace? 
I'm glad we're still in that day of gospel opportunity. You can prepare to meet him tonight as the sinner saved by grace. Through simply trusting him and trusting the saving of your soul to his work for you and for the lost. For he suffered, he died, he buried, he, was ro- he rose again. That he might take sinners like you and I to heaven unto home. If somebody asked you who is Jesus, I hope you'll be able to answer with Newton's hymn that we sang at the start of the meeting tonight. What think ye of Christ is the test? The last verse says, If asked what of Jesus I think, though still my best thoughts are but poor, I'll say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my husband, my trust and my friend, my saviour from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, my all. What is Jesus?